loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Dorothy and Martin Hellman. They married as polar opposites, leading to fights that nearly destroyed their relationship. Their book, A New Map for Relationship, Creating True Love at Home and Peace on the Planet, explains how staring divorce in the face led them to recapture the true love that they had felt in their initial infatuation and to fall in love with the world as a whole. Marty's research on encryption was originally seen as a fool's errand, but recently won him the top prize in computer science, the Million Dollar Turing Award. Following Dorothy down an uncharted path until they reclaimed true love also seemed like a fool's errand, but proved even more rewarding. Dorothy spent several decades following a relationship map that had her repeatedly driving off cliffs until she found the courage to piece together a new map. To do that, she spent more than half her life studying anger, fear, and grief, as well as joy, love, and especially compassion. Welcome, Dorothy and Martin. Thank you, Cheryl. It's good to be here. Thank you, Cheryl. Very good to have you here. I really appreciated your book, especially not not only as someone in relationship, but also as someone who works with relationship, uh, to have uh, the logic of compassion laid out so fully was truly meaningful to me. So I want to thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Um, I wanted to start just by talking about being polar opposites, you know, Almost every couple that ends up in a therapy office in my office with me says, we're so different, we're, we're opposites, we're, you know, <laughs> so not an uncommon thing. Um, and I'd really like to hear from each of you how you understand the differences between you. How are you polar opposites? Dorothy, you want to start? Yes, Um Marty tends to lead with his head, and I tend to lead with my heart. And when I think of things, um, I think in a totally different way from Marty. I come from my feelings and um, my intuition. So in a situation, I would be more likely to say how I feel about something, Um And he would be more likely to say how he thinks about something. I'll give you an example. Um, Once I said to him that I, I just, I hurt so badly. I feel this terrible way. And he said, you can't feel that way. It's not logical. (laughs) (laughs) What I really meant was, I don't like the way you're feeling. Please stop it. Please stop it. Please take that feeling away. (laughs) Right. But the interesting thing is it's been getting in touch with the hurt feelings that's been essential to our reclaiming that mad love that we felt 50 years ago when we met. 
And I do have to say that I didn't think that was possible. I have to give Dorothy credit for the vision that we could actually get back there. I mean, it's really amazing. It's not happening now, but sometimes when I talk to people about how I feel about Dorothy and how our relationship is, I'll get choked up. I mean, it's, it's like being a kid in love again. And here I am, 71 years old. Mm-hmm. And having been together pretty much your whole adult lives, yes? Yes. Yes. <laughs> More than our adult lives, a part of our childhood too. Part of your childhood too. <laughs> and some of the ch- some of the childhood was when we were in our twenties or even thirties. <laughs> yes, that's familiar. We're you know they're they've redefined adolescence now, twelve to twenty four. That yeah. really resonates with me. That uh, watching myself and my kids, you're just not grown up for a ways into your twenties for sure. Well, that's true, but I was, also, I was also referring to the fact that when we used to have fights, and one of the really amazing things, we haven't had a fight in about 15 years, which, again, I didn't think was possible. We still disagree. We still engage. But uh, uh, differences of opinion that used to lead to fights have become opportunities uh, for learning. But when we used to get into fights, even in our mid-30s, we would regress to being two-year-olds. I mean, we throw tantrums. We, you know, use every weapon at our disposal. Uh, I mean, it, uh, it's what most people do, but it's very childish. That reminds me of a of a uh, a, a pronouncement I captured from graduate school, which is the higher the level of stress, the earlier the level of coping. Yes. Uh, and and until you recognize that, it's really hard to intervene for yourself, isn't it? Until you realize, woo, I must be under a lot of stress. I'm going there. (laughs) I'm crying like a baby right now. Uh, It's really hard to address, isn't it? It is. It is. We made a rule, rule, uh, jokingly, that we both can't be tired or stressed at the same time, because of course you can't (laughs) prevent that. But what we really meant is if we're both tired or stressed at the same time, we have to be really forgiving of ourselves and the other, because that's it. You know, if one of us is stressed and the other isn't, then one can be the adult. Uh, but if you're both at the same time in a stressful place, then there are, it is going to be hard. And no, you may yeah. say things that you'll regret, but you have to forgive yourself and the other person for that instead of make, making mistakes about the mistake. Mm. Dorothy, I get the idea from the book that uh, your own agony propelled the two of you into this exploration in the first place. Uh, how did you get those so determined? Because a lot of people in that circumstance give up uh, and leave. Um, but I'm, but you didn't choose that. That's interesting to me. Well, I'm pretty stubborn. And um, when I saw that our marriage was coming apart, um, I had to decide whether I was going to give up and move out on my own and and uh, end our relationship or whether I was going to make it work. Those were the only two options for me. I, I couldn't just manage. That wouldn't be possible. So because it wouldn't be possible to just manage and because I love this man dearly and I decided he was the one, so I was going to stay in it and make it work. And that meant I had to really... Um, we talk in the book about being demanding. I had to be demanding of him for our relationship to be better because I couldn't stay in a relationship that wasn't meaningful and profound and deep. Yeah, and I will second that Dorothy can be very stubborn. She's also very intuitive. 
um, someone asked her, you know, how she knew she could do it. And she, uh, this was about two weeks ago, um, because this, this was something she'd never done, she'd never seen done. And she just said, well, I just knew I could do it. And uh, as you've seen in the book, Cheryl, there are things that Dorothy, people ask Dorothy questions, like her hairdresser who asked what advice she had for a good marriage. And she said, be very demanding, you know, which it shocked her. She didn't know what it even meant. She had to think about it. But the point there is that Dorothy is very connected at an intuitive level uh, that is very powerful once we honor the intuitive as opposed to de- uh, demanding, as I used to do, the, the purely logical, which is highly illogical. Well, and also, uh, I, I just want to put in a word for you, Marty, that without the capacity to think things through, we also get in trouble, that both have mm. their contributions to make. Yes. Uh, I, I find that, for instance, in your book, you both uh, put a lot of energy into um, explaining how choosing compassion every time is logical. And, yes. I, you know, I, uh, I, I found that very compelling. It's, it's kind of where I come from. How does it make sense, really, to, to attack the person you love the most? But, yes. uh, but many people do, make, do pretend that makes sense. So bringing logic, yes, no, that doesn't make sense, uh, is a good argument for people who do tend to think, think things through, Yeah. Yes, and so certainly you're right. Um, it's not that I've put logic aside. Dorothy will tell you that right away, and I think it'll come through in this interview. Uh, but um, the way I look at it sometimes, and we didn't put this in the book, there was too much. Um, in the 19th century, physicists did what they called physics. They didn't call it classical physics as we do today because they didn't know about relativity and quantum mechanics. But they were doing a very limited form of physics. In the same way, I now view that the logic I use now is a kind of quantum or relativistic logic. It made no sense uh, to me before we made these shifts, before we really uh, delved into ourselves and learned to be compassionate and to use holistic thinking and to question ourselves. Uh, And so now it's still logical, but it's a way that made no sense to my old logical um, self. I think it's key that Marty said holistic. (laughs) holistic thinking, because um, that's generally how he puts it, while I put it compassion. But mm. So for him, that's the logical framework that he comes from. Yeah, and by holistic thinking, I mean, when we used to have fights, Dorothy was fighting for what she thought she wanted, I was fighting for what I thought I wanted, and that was the model we had in the world, in our parents, in the movies, in the books. And yet it wasn't working. I mean, it's like what you said just before, Cheryl. What made us think that yelling at one another was going to get us what we wanted? I mean, it just doesn't make any logical sense. And holistic thinking is being committed to finding solutions that work for both of us, as impossible as that might seem at first. And there are stories where, like 25 years ago, it took us a month to find a holistic solution. That's Dorothy's 25th anniversary ring. But then there's another story two years ago about buying a new car, where as soon as I went to her and got curious instead of furious. I mean, because she was doing something that seemed crazy to me. Why was she looking at new cars when we didn't need one? (laughs) Well, it turned out we (laughs) did. (laughs) The car car was mechanically perfect, but it didn't meet our needs in terms of safety features given our age and the medications that Dorothy's on. Well, I love that story, definitely, because in the end, uh, the... The holistic solution or the compassionate solution, however we want to, whatever word we want to use, 
was really better than either one of you probably could have imagined on your own. Absolutely. And that's what we found. And, and I've, I've just seen that over and over and over when people really get in there and negotiate from the point of view that both people need to like the solution. There's mm-hmm. a magic to the solutions often that really blows my mind. Um, it, it's not what either person would have thought they wanted in the in the start. I, I agree. But of course, it took a long time to get to this thing two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd love to have you share the section of the book that's about moving from blame to responsibility because that is so key. Uh, Almost every couple I start working with starts from the point of view of whose fault is this? And yeah. until you move beyond that, you can't go anywhere. We, we have a saying in our family, when something happens, we say, assess blame first. That's our big joke. Because, of course, we don't blame anybody. But we do say that and then laugh at things. So It's such a temptation, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's it's what you think of when something happens and we just say it so it's out out there and then nobody blames anybody. Yeah, it's, right. it's, the, it's, the, it's the model that we've all grown up with. We don't actually, I didn't think there was a different model. But so, honey, why don't you go ahead and start reading uh, since you're, it's, this is a dialogue and the whole book is written in dialogue form. So go ahead. Okay. Early in our marriage, if Marty did something that made me mad and I reacted by mistreating him, I saw it as... I saw it as his fault. He had made me mad. In our new map, no one else can make me mad. Each of us is totally responsible for how we treat one another, no matter how justified our anger might seem. In the early phases of this healing process, I still got mad at things that Marty did, but now there was a crucial difference. If I lost it and mistreated Marty, I couldn't blame my bad behavior on him. I had a responsibility, once I had calmed down, to apologize for hurting him, whether or not he apologized to me for what I thought he had done. And sometimes what I thought he had done was very different from what he had actually done. Of course, that worked both ways. I couldn't blame my bad behavior on Dorothy. I needed to recognize that I might see an insult when none was intended, and I had exactly the same responsibility to apologize unconditionally when I had mistreated her no matter what I thought she had done. I couldn't say, I'm sorry, but. That but would totally cancel my apology. And I couldn't just be saying the words. I really had to be sorry that I'd mistreated the woman I cherished. Not surprisingly, at first there were times that neither of us was able to rise to that level of maturity. But when that happened, we'd have to pick ourselves up and recommit to the ideal we'd set as the goal for our relationship. And I couldn't hold a grudge against Dorothy for falling down because I had done the same. One day, after making a lot of no, progress... No, that's, no, that's it. Oh, that's, that's, it. <laughs> that's, that's the next reading. We, we could okay. just have you guys read from the book the whole hour, but we're going <laughs> to talk anyway. <laughs> okay. What I, what, I, I'm, um, what I pondered on reading the whole book, but that passage in particular, is relationships in which... Uh, one person is constantly taking responsibility for their behavior and the other person is completely not on board with taking responsibility for theirs. Uh, what's, what's really magic between the two of you is that you 
somehow managed to commit together to that way of relating? Uh, it's, it, it is magical, and I think the key was we both really loved one another, and I didn't know how much I loved Dorothy. It was only when I saw that we were headed for disaster, uh, and I was willing to put aside my old map, tear up my old map, because that's really the, the metaphor we use throughout, that uh, uh, the first story in the book, Dorothy gets so mad at me that she rips a map out of my hands and tears it to little pieces all over the car, and I had provoked it, of course. Uh, but it's scary to tear up maps. Uh, and uh, um, uh, But I realized when, when, when I was faced with the fact that I was going to lose her if I didn't change, I, w- I would, was willing to change. And it surprised me that I loved her that much, that I was willing, but I'm really glad I did. She's worth it. Well yeah. worth it. I did say that I was determined that this relationship should work. But Marty gets a lot of the credit for being willing to participate with me in making this happen. Yeah, as, we, as you said in the beginning, Cheryl, only a fool would follow her down this uncharted path. <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of like faith in, in anything. Uh, yeah. you can't, there's no proof for it. Right. Well, actually, you just I got, have to kind of step out into the unknown. Yeah, one thing I need to add is I, see, I, I now see being a fool as uh, a, a very positive thing. Uh, like the work for which I won that top award in computer science was seen as foolish at first. So one of my favorite talks, and there's a section in the book called The Wisdom of Foolishness. Mm. That's a great, a great moment for our first break. We'll come back and talk about the wisdom, wisdom of foolishness in just a minute. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And uh, you can also sign up for my email list by following the link to my website. To find Martin and Dorothy Hellman, go to anewmap.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. 
To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Dorothy and Martin Hellman about their new book, A New Map for Relationship. And before the break, Dorothy and and Marty, we were talking about the wisdom of foolishness or being a fool. Um, It made me think of something I hadn't for a long time. Uh, There's a tarot card that's called The Fool, and um, the character in it is walking over a cliff very happily and uh it, you know there is that that sense in which you have to really step out into the unknown uh with your whole heart to find anything new absolutely yes? it's, it's actually interesting dorothy why don't you tell cheryl how i came to see the wisdom of foolishness well i i did a reading with him with tarot cards and his life journey came out to be the first card in the tarot deck the fool and he was a little upset by that. I'm, a Stanford, I'm not a fool. I'm a Stanford professor. <laughs> until I explained to him that the first step in any journey is the fool. And um, so if the first step in any journey is the fool, it's a pretty good place to be. Well, not only that, that it was then that I realized that my whole life had been being the fool. As I said, uh, um, uh, when I started working in cryptography in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, my colleagues uniformly told me I was crazy to do so, and they had two very good reasons. Uh, NSA had a huge budget and a dec- several decades had start. How could I hope to discover something they didn't already know? And if I did anything good, uh, they would classify it. And both arguments were very valid. In fact, both arguments came to haunt me. Uh, there was a threat I might be thrown in jail for publishing my papers. I took NSA on in the late, mid to late 70s, uh, almost single-handedly in a fight over uh, uh, privacy. Uh, and yet, in hindsight, with the awards I've won for doing that work, uh, you'd have to say it's very wise to, to be so foolish. And that's when I started to realize the wisdom of foolishness. So thank you, Dorothy, for uh, helping me see that, even though at first I was incensed. <laughs> well, and of course, uh, as someone who works in the cancer world, uh, that landscape it has changed uh, beyond belief in the last 30 years. And I know it pretty intimately from living with someone with cancer and now working with people with cancer. And n- there is no way that that could happen unless people s- believed there's some solution they haven't thought of. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and in fact, in the in the book, I used two or three examples, that, and I had more that I used in a lecture I gave to the Stanford Engineering School. Uh, Vince Cerf, who uh, is one of the true fathers of the Internet, uh, wrote, I, I made sure I got it right by emailing these people. Uh, Vince wrote back to me, yes, people thought packet switching, which is the basis of the Internet, was crazy. Uh, uh, Brad Parkinson, who really is the father of uh, um, GPS, uh, again, a colleague of mine at Stanford, wrote that in the late 60s, when he first proposed it, the Air Force thought GPS was crazy. Uh, because at that point in time, the receivers cost a quarter of a million dollars each, weighed 150 pounds, needed a small generator to power them. You couldn't, you know, not battery powered. But Brad saw the um, digital revolution underway. So the best results, both technologically and I think otherwise, 
come uh, are initially seen as foolish. Only a fool would have proposed ending slavery in 1850. And yet that was and, the right thing to do. And, and only a fool would think that you could have a relationship without arguments. Yeah. Um, <laughs> very often when we talk to people and we say we haven't had an argument in 15 years, they look at us and they say, well, we like arguments. And you say, well, okay, if you like arguments. <laughs> have fun then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I mean, there can be argument that includes compassion, I, I believe. Yes. Let's well, say that. Well, we're using Let's angry say angry arguments. arguments then. Yes, where you mistreat the other person. We're talking, yeah, I mean, we still disagree, and you could call that an argument, but we don't, we're very careful not to mistreat one another. We still love one another through the disagreement. It's, it's a very different kind of disagreement or argument from before. We, we, we don't, we, that's why we don't call them arguments. Yes. Well, also, I, I was keenly aware that at one point in the book, you talked about having an ironclad agreement that if you could not, uh, bring compassion to the situation you had it was your obligation to walk away yes and, a- yeah and of course uh, that is seen as abandonment by many members of couples it's hard to get them to see that actually it's in their service to walk away if 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 a person cannot engage fruitfully Right. Well, the reason there was an obligation to leave the room without saying anything if you, it, is so you would not mistreat the other person. But you also had the obligation in this agreement, this ironclad agreement we had, you had the obligation when you'd cool down to come back and bridge back and make it right. So that's why at first we, I think we still felt abandoned because there was so much uh, uh, baggage. But over time, we really came to see that it worked and we trusted the other person would come back. You know, that that's something I'd really like to speak with you about is the little improvements that lead to the radical improvement that people tend not to take seriously enough Uh, because it's not, you know, your goal was to have a compassion-based relationship. But, of course, there were steps along the way to an uh, an argument-free environment, yes? Mm -hmm. Um, And somehow you stayed encouraged I, I would love to hear what you think helped you um, see the value in those small steps. Dorothy? Well, um, again, it was, we really needed to get it right. And for, for us, right meant always treating the other person as the precious person they were. And so... We were continually reminded of the need to do that. And we were, when we were out of step with that, we had to step back and say, okay, this is a point that we need to address and to go back and figure out what, what's not working here. How can we fix this? How can we make this okay? So that we don't step into this over and over and over again. So address it and get it handled instead of just letting it roll on. Mm. That, that reminds me of something I think about a lot, which is that relationship is the only area where people tend to come from the viewpoint, even though there's nothing that proves this to be true, that it should just work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that you, that you shouldn't have to work at it. You shouldn't have to, uh, if, you, if you have to 
hang in with a difficult thing for longer than two minutes, you've failed somehow. When I don't think, by and large, we would bring that to other areas, like being in school, for instance. Uh, learning right. things is hard. Right. Well, I, we, I even say something about, I wrote something about that in the book. I wrote that I knew that uh, winning fame, uh, fortune took hard work, but I didn't expect being a loving person, being a loving husband took hard work. It just was natural. And yet it's the hardest thing I've, I've learned to do, but the most rewarding. I think that's a good spot for you to, to uh, share that section of the book. You're not listening, you know, that, that experience you had along the way. Uh, because I think it's great to let people in on the sort of the sense of stages that things can go wrong and then right. Can you okay. share this? Sure. One day after making a lot of progress, but still far from where we are today, we got into an argument about something so, quote, important, unquote, that neither one of us can remember what it was about. What both of us vividly remember and what was really important was the surprising way in which we moved past the previously insurmountable barrier of my not feeling heard. As the argument progressed, Dorothy told me what I'd heard a million times before. You're not listening. So I told her what I'd also said a million times before, that she was wrong and that, I, that I'd heard every word she'd said. We went through a few more iterations of her exclaiming, you're not listening, followed by my loudly asserting, Yes, I am. My ears are open. What do you want me to hear? Just say it. In the past, each such iteration would have made both of us more frustrated and angry. But we've made enough progress at this point that while Dorothy was determined to be heard, she did not get mad at me. She dug in her heels, but did not attack me. Operating at that more mature level allowed Marty to do something that created a crack in the old dam of resentment. He asked me how I knew that he wasn't listening. I told him that if he were listening, he'd be behaving differently. At first, Dorothy's reply didn't seem to help since I had, I had no idea what I could do differently. Exasperated, I told her, I'm doing everything I can humanly think of to hear you, but there must be something else I could do since you're still not feeling heard. What is it? I didn't really expect an answer, but to my amazement, Dorothy replied, you just did it. I, I, I love that because, uh, you know, you can probably tell me and I will ask you what you think happened there. <laughs> but, from, but from my view, what happened is uh, you, Marty, you accepted failure. I accepted failure and I accepted Dorothy's reality before when she said, you're not listening. And I said, yes, I am. I wasn't listening. I mean, that's the thing that really hit me. I was hearing the words, but I wasn't accepting her message. And, and every time you said I am, you were, you were uh, denying her. Exactly. So every way. time I said, every time I said I'm listening, I was not listening by definition because I was not taking in what she was saying. And as soon as, and so I think it surprised, Dorothy, did it surprise you as much as it did me that my saying, what, what is it, actually led you to say, I just did it? Yes, I was, I was surprised. Yeah, you thought you'd want me to agree with you, but you, all you want me to do is stop denying your reality and to engage in a conversation to find out what we both agreed on. Yes. I was also really struck in that passage that what you meant by listening was, was quite different. 
uh, Dorothy, you meant taking in what I'm saying at an emotional level. And I, I believe, Marty, what you meant was my ears are open. Right. I've heard your words. <laughs> I've heard your words. And those things are actually not similar. So, <laughs> well, and in fact... You were both right and you were both wrong. Right after that uh, in the book, we didn't get into that, that part in the reading. Dorothy says she realizes what she really should have told me is I don't feel heard. Uh, yes. Instead of you're not listening. Because I couldn't argue with the fact that she doesn't. I mean, I might have tried arguing with her over the fact that she didn't feel heard. But <laughs> at an earlier time, you would have, right? Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't. What you're feeling doesn't make sense. You can't be feeling that. <laughs> yeah, I'm just heard that at that point. <laughs> yep. But you know uh, uh, what? I I have a very similar viewpoint to yours, um, and it, it's it's really hard to get people on board in a way with being careful of each other uh, people will say it doesn't feel natural or um, I, I feel I, I feel like I'm in prison you know because I have to be so careful what I say well, that's, um, that's a very nice thing once we started respecting one another we didn't have to be careful I mean I can make I know now that I can make any mistake with Dorothy and it's forgive, it, will, it will be forgiven. In fact, it won't even need to be forgiven because she feels so loved by me in other ways that uh, whatever I might do that would hurt her, she knows it it's not intended and she would forgive it and vice versa. And so you've gotten to the place where you really do trust each other's intentions regardless of uh, a, um, a careless action. Yes, but one of the things, since we uh, kept referring back to parts of the book that we're not reading, if uh, people want to, they of course, they can buy the book from Amazon and Barnes & Noble, but we also recently put a PDF up on our website, which can be downloaded free of charge. And if people want to read the whole book that way without paying anything, they can. Uh, and so, again, the website is three words run together, a newmap.com, and it's to get the book tab where they can, they can click to download the PDF. I really encourage people to do that because uh, regardless of your viewpoint on all of this, it's, it's, it's something I think would affect people in reading it because you make such a compelling argument. And that brings us to uh, what I'd like to do next because uh, this, you have the book in two sections. The second section is how this applies globally. And that seems so relevant right now. Uh, how do nation states bring this into their dealings and and what happens when they don't? Uh, can we begin to make that connection in the next couple of minutes and then take a break and come back to it? Sure. I think that's one of the things that's unique about the book is it's not just about how to make relationships better. In fact, uh, uh, it's about how to make the world uh, a more peaceful place. The subtitle is Creating True Love at Home and Peace on the Planet. And we found that the same things we had to learn in our relationship to make it work are the same things the nations of the world need to do so that we don't destroy this beautiful world. Um, we need to get curious instead of furious. We need to ask more questions. We need to apply holistic thinking. Uh, and we'll find that the solutions internationally, again, work much better for our nation than the ones that we think we want going into it. 
like we thought we wanted to invade Iraq. It didn't work so well, did it? Indeed. Dorothy, would you want to say anything about that? Because I tend to talk more, as people <laughs> probably noticed. <laughs> no, it's fine. You did a good job. I would, I would add that we can always use compassion no matter where we go. Um, if we'd really had compassion for the people in Iraq, I don't believe we would have gone there. I think they, we we say we have compassion for people, and then we go take care of them by bombing them. It's not really rational. It's I mean, bomb, logic. Bombing, it's illogical logic. Bombing illogical is not, logic. Bombing's not compassionate, huh? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of pushback for that idea, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know. Um, the carrot and the and the fist and all these ways of thinking about uh, bringing other countries up short so they don't hurt us. That whole sense and of course I don't. I noticed so much in this election cycle uh, that there is no particular viewpoint that can't be expressed either compassionately or um, viciously. Mm -hmm. And uh, the amount of viciousness towards each other was, it was really out to sea. And so because I'm someone who's focused on um, transformation through loss, I am now thinking how do we how do we go forward with this because it's very plain to see isn't it Yes it is Um so it's time for a second break I want to come back to that connection between how we treat each other in our homes and how uh nations treat each other the similarity in those two um two areas and listeners as as Martin just said, you can download their their book in its entirety at anewmap.com, and I would highly recommend you do that. Um, you can find me at my website, weatheringgrief.com, or at the Good Grief Host page at Voice America. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness.
listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Dorothy and Martin Hellman. Talking about their book, A New Map for Relationships, let me just reiterate, you can you can get that at uh, anewmap.com for free right now. So I, I really recommend you do that. Very good read. Uh, well, and hopefully, I know part of your goal is to contribute to a shift of thinking uh, that it, when I think you express it this way, when enough people think a new thing, it begins to get traction. That's that's a paraphrase, but um, that's 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 good. I mean, it's like slavery. When slavery was seen as a fool, ending slavery was seen as a fool fool's errand in 1850. It would never happen, but sometime around 1863, 1864, it became uh, seen as conceivable. And so, there's a whole section in the book on belief systems and how powerful they are. And and this sense of uh, I find often, especially people that are that are wired like you are, Marty, um, they have to have a reason to consider something different first. They have to see the sense in it. Oh, ironically, brother. because you know what they've been doing doesn't make sense, but they don't know it. <laughs> Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think we, I needed to recognize two things, that what I was doing was not working. And so that's part of this illogical logic. I, uh, I mean, I prided myself on logic, and yet I kept doing the same experiment over and over again, yelling at Dorothy to get what I wanted. I never got what I wanted, and yet I kept trying that same experiment. That's uh, insanity. So let's, uh, I'd like to have you read, there are a couple sections, one that's just about the illogical logic uh, in the relationship, which is what you're talking about. And then let's make a link to how that applies to nuclear war, uh, more global issues. Could you, could you start just with the, uh, the, what you realized about the illogic of how you were conducting the relationship? Sure. And this part of the book is me talking. So it'll, you just hear me and I'll, I'll make the segue when I shift from reading to one part to another. So, Earlier in our relationship, I tried running the family based on logic. This was not a smart move in general, and it was worse because I was the only male in the house. We have two daughters. Trying to logic everything out kept failing, but illogically, I kept repeating that same experiment until I found the courage to tear up my old map and try something new. One of the most illogical things I ever said to Dorothy, though of course I didn't see it that way at the time, was when she was feeling some way I didn't like. I told her, you can't feel that way. It doesn't make any sense. Now I can see how illogical my comment was. Feelings don't make sense. They just are. And so that was how it applies in the, in the family. And then uh, some pages, uh, a few pages, let's see, that was 245. A couple of pages down, I talk about the same thing at, involving nuclear weapons, which is one of the most formidable challenges we face. So here's what we say there. Nuclear logic places great emphasis on the credibility of deterrence. But how credible is it to threaten an action that will result in our own destruction? 
That illogical logic was captured in top secret hearings before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in 1980 in the following exchange between Senator John Glenn, who just died recently, incidentally, and Secretary of Defense Harold Brown after a long argument about whether a new strategy made nuclear deterrence more credible. Senator Glenn said, I get lost in what's credible and not credible. This whole thing gets so incredible when you consider wiping out whole nations, it's difficult to establish credibility. Secretary Brown then said, that's why we sound a little crazy when we talk about it. And to which Senator Glenn said, that's the best statement of the day. <laughs> I love that because uh, it. I remember as a kid when we were hiding under the desks and all of that, I'm a, I'm a little... Uh, you know, I'm uh, heading to mid-60s, uh, and it it was not lost on me, even as a little kid, that hiding under a desk was going to do nothing <laughs> um, if this thing really happened. Yes. Uh, and it was terribly, painfully frightening. And somehow that has worn off. We don't think all the time about the frightening nature of that strategy. You're, uh, absolutely, you're absolutely right. Most people that I talk with seem to feel as if the nuclear threat and maybe even nuclear weapons disappeared with the uh, when the Berlin Wall came down. But that's not the case. We have about 15,000 in the world today, which is a lot better than the roughly 70,000 at the peak of the insanity but it's still enough to prop, to destroy civilization, and there's even some potential that it could uh, extinguish the human race. And, of, of course, being sort of fair-minded by nature, I'm thinking, okay, we have, I don't know, thousands and thousands and thousands. Some nations have none. They've got to feel a pretty acute threat. The, the nations we're trying to convince not to have them when we still have them, you know, the yeah. whole thing seems a little preposterous to me when I really think about it. Yes, well, Ahmadinejad, the former president of Iran, who I don't agree with in general, but there's one thing he said uh, when uh, about the nuclear weapons. Uh, when we, uh, he said, if nuclear weapons are so bad for us, why do you have them? And if they're so good for you, why shouldn't we have them? Exactly, exactly that. So... You believe that this principle of continuing to talk until the solution works for both and um, taking it as a given that each person has a point could shift the global uh, the global scene if enough people, embody it yeah say, say something about about that maybe dorothy do you want to chime chime in on this well um a word that everybody understands is respect um if you approach a person with respect and you honor him then you don't want him to get less than you you want him to get what he needs. I had a client, a business client who used to call it business. He says, in business, everybody gets what they need. Everybody gets what they want. And, and it works. He said, if that doesn't happen, business doesn't work. Mm. And, and that's, that's how I see it in the international scale. 
too. Well, um, and in fact, n- nuclear weapons, if, if people would recognize the, the threat posed by nuclear weapons, they'd see that the, the more we threaten Russia, the more we humiliate Russia, the more insecure we are as a nation. I mean, Russia has uh, thousands of nuclear weapons and could destroy us in under an hour. And the only thing we could do in response would be to destroy whatever's left of civilization. So one of the things we talk about in the book, or I talk about, is the fact that the United States is continually referred to as the world's sole remaining superpower, without ever stopping to think about what that means. What, if a nation can be destroyed in under an hour and do nothing but destroy whatever's left, is that a superpower? And I even argue that every nation, if we think holistically in time, not just in space, but in time, if we think down the road, if North Korea, with its lousy economy and everything else that's wrong with it, can get nuclear weapons, any nation that really wants them can get them. And if we threaten nations enough, they will want them. So we have to treat every nation as a latent superpower with more respect, as Dorothy just put it. Hmm. It, it seems so credible, sane, and logical. <laughs> to 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 go in that direction, and yet I I know um, you know I always I, I I was I was talking with a group of colleagues once, and I said I'm a I'm a radical pacifist. I I don't even engage in self defense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh-huh. And they and even that group of very compassionate. Um, psychologically astute, you know, wise people could not go that far. Marty, uh, what? Marty, why don't you talk about the nobler hypothesis? Oh, okay. So uh, Harry Rathbun, who is a professor at Stanford, uh, and uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, for example, credits him with being a the key influence in her life. Uh, told me this. He said. Um, There are two hypotheses about uh, human beings. The noble hypothesis is that we're capable of these great changes and surviving with nuclear weapons and climate change and all these other things, although he he died before climate change was an issue. That's the noble hypothesis, that we are capable of of great change. The less noble hypothesis is that we're doomed. And he said, if we accept the less noble hypothesis, if we assume we're doomed, then we're doomed even if we had the capability because we won't be motivated. But the worst that happens if we accept the noble hypothesis is that we go down fighting and we might actually win and survive and, 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 and flourish. So he says, I don't see the harm in assuming the noble hypothesis. And a lot of gains along the way. Um, I'll, I'll use a personal example, you know, being somebody from a, a, I'm 63, I came out at 17 in 1970. Oh, you were brave. And, um, thank you. <laughs> and, and if you, uh, if you witness the arc of history in terms of how people relate to people who, ch- who have a life like mine, I wasn't even human to most people at that point. Mm-hmm. And that has, that has changed, hasn't it? Yes, so it has. So continuing to speak and say, I am a human being, you know, telling my parents, I'm a human being who, who's a woman who loves a woman, you know, and all that change happening, I really could not have predicted 
And of course, things uh, go in a spiral with lots of dips. Uh, there's there's always a, a a reaction. For every action, there's a reaction. But nonetheless, the two situations of 1970 and now don't really compare. We forget that. Absolutely. In fact, there's a section in the book that we added when I won the Turing Award, because this top prize in computer science is known as the Turing Award. And if, as you know, he was a homosexual who was hounded to death uh, because of his homosexuality in spite of his tremendous wartime contributions. Absolutely. And uh, that was in the 50s. And so I list, I won't go into them because I know we're running short of time, but I list four deeply held societal beliefs that turned out to be mistaken, that being one of them. Uh, and I then conclude if a, an area experienced major earthquakes at that same frequency, we wouldn't assume that, that we'd seen the last one. We'd assume there are others. And so we then look at some of the new, uh, uh, some of the current deeply held societal beliefs that might turn out to be mistaken. Uh, the first of which is that uh, we propose a couple. And the first one we propose is that uh, fighting is intrinsic to uh, marriages and other personal relationships as well as to nations. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it isn't. That would be a, a very good thing to believe. I'm going to go on that basis in my in my marriage and in how I look at the global situation, too, and look for ways to act on that, because I think it takes courage, actually. It makes us feel quite vulnerable to not rise in anger against uh, things that threaten us. Yes. Uh, what's seen as weak is actually very courageous. Exactly. So um, I, I just want to say I've appreciated the conversation a lot, and I do want people, I know that you are both interested together in kind of a movement in this direction, that it's not just about uh, sharing your own experience, it's also about starting something. So I do want to really encourage people to at least go read the book and see what they think, because um, you gave me hope at a time I was feeling a little depressed. So, <laughs> so thanks bo to both of you a lot. And, and, and listeners, you can go to anewmap.com to find the book and everything about uh, the Hellmans. Next week, I'll have uh, In Ingrid Blaufert-Hughes, author of Losing Aaron, Aaron, about the life and death of her son as a result of his mental illness. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.